Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. This is Eric Veith, and I'm here today for part two of our interview with Dan Holloway. Hi, Dan. Hi there. Dan is the author of a book that is titled Lawyers, Judges, and Semi-Rational Beasts. It's a 2020 book, and it combines cognitive science with trial practice. We've already had one episode where we talked about the basis of your research, and now in this episode, we're going to talk more about practical applications for trial lawyers. First of all, let's talk about statistics. You have a chapter that talks about intuition doesn't understand statistics. Can you talk about that, please? Yeah. So Kahneman talks a lot about this in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow. You know, the gist of it is math is hard, numbers are hard, and we just don't have a very good intuitive feel for numbers. So if you are using numbers, you need to find a way to turn it into something that is intuitive and familiar, visuals, of course. But if you can find an anecdote, a story that makes the basic point you're trying to make with the numbers in a different form and then connect the two up, you know, that will give it power and hopefully will make it more easily understood. But any point for which numbers are a central part of the proof, you really need to think creatively about how to bring it home in a way to make it instantly understandable and powerful. Andy Clark wrote a book called Being There. He's got a line in that book, we're good at Frisbee, bad at math. And the idea is that we excel at pattern matching, which leads to the suggestion that we think in connectionist ways, we connect a lot of things to a lot of things in our brains that are not necessarily the traditional computer ease type logical analytical ways of thinking. So it works well with what you've said that we need to maybe consider visuals in order to understand math. Right. One of the points about how humans work is that our emotional response to harm does not scale up in a direct line with numbers. There's that famous quote attributed to Joseph Stalin, something like, the death of one man is a tragedy, the death of a million is a statistic. If you're trying to convey the scale of harm, you want to pair the number up with a face, an individual, an anecdote, a representative. The number needs a face if it's going to have emotional impact. Let me introduce this topic of cognitive ease, which you describe in your book. It reminded me of Daniel Kahneman's concept of what you see is all there is, which I think of all the time. And the idea is that the thing that's in front of you seems to be the only thing for a lot of people a lot of the time. And he drew three conclusions from that. It's our beliefs are radically insensitive to both the quality and quantity of evidence. We only need a good story. And that it's easier to construct a coherent story when we have less evidence. Yeah, so our capacity for something as simple as paying attention is pretty low. It takes work to pay attention to things. It burns glucose in the brain. This applies whether you're writing a brief or whether you're talking to a jury. Because of that, we need to pay a lot of attention. We need to put a lot of work into making things absolutely as easy as possible for the decision maker. First, pay attention. Second, to understand what we are saying or writing. And third, to think through it. 
Obviously, you want to keep it as short as you can. Now, that doesn't mean it has to be super short. It doesn't mean there's some arbitrary limit on pages for a brief or the minutes for an opening statement, but you don't want unnecessary length because unnecessary length imposes an unnecessary burden on the audience, and you're more likely to lose them before you get through. The second piece, making it as easy as possible to understand, you know, a simple sentence, subject, verb, direct object, Jane kicked the ball. That sentence is very easy to understand, but if you start making it a complex grammatical structure, adding clauses or phrases dangling off of the core of the sentence, it gets just a little harder to perceive, just a little bit more burdensome to understand. And then if you pile a thousand of those sentences together, each of them unnecessarily burdensome to perceive and understand, you can wear a judge out. In writing, in order to create as much cognitive ease as possible, you want simple everyday words to the extent you can use them, and you want simple short sentences. Short sentences, simple grammatical structure. You know, it's worth taking a brief that you've written and going through every single sentence and rewriting it to make it as simple as possible. One fact per sentence, simple words, simple grammatical structure. And then the same thing, of course, applies when you're talking to a jury. And this takes practice because lawyers do not instinctively speak simply. All of law school kind of teaches you to talk in unfamiliar, complicated ways. And most of the talk that we do with colleagues is it's fancy talk. It's lawyer talk. It takes real practice to get away from that, but it pays off because the simpler you can speak and write, the more easily you will be understood. I'm sure that you've heard the saying it's been attributed to many writers. It goes something like this. I wrote you a letter. If I would have had more time, I would have written you a shorter letter. The idea is that the first draft doesn't usually come out being that way that you just described. You got to work it, at least in my experience. It never comes out good on the first try. And I have lots of tricks and I'm sure you do too. But one of them is when you get close to the end, read it out loud. That's where I notice a lot of the problems. I want it to flow. I want the thing to read like a person talking as much as I can. I want it to have that cognitive ease. Part of the reason we as lawyers struggle with speaking simply is because our motivation is not just to help the client. Our motivation is not just to do a good job. Our motivation is to make people think we're smart. We want people to think well of us. We want people to think that we're smart, we're sophisticated, we're talented lawyers. And all of the signals we get in our working lives, or most of the signals, are that smart, sophisticated lawyers sound really lawyery. I can feel this working in me when I write a brief, and I've put a lot of energy into beating that impulse down. And after years and years, I think I've finally gotten to the point where my first draft of a brief is pretty simple. Most of my briefs nowadays, even on the first draft, do not convey the impression of somebody trying to sound smart. I will say, though, most of the briefs I read from my opponents sound like they're written by somebody who's trying to prove he's a lawyer. You know, we know you're a lawyer. You don't have to prove you're a lawyer. We know you're smart because you've got a bar license. You got through law school. You don't need to prove you're smart. What you need to do is just make the damn sentence as simple as possible. The other piece of that, the piece about simple words, conversational language, simple everyday words, 
The other reason for using those, apart from cognitive ease, is that they are more emotionally evocative. You will have a stronger emotional response to whatever you're talking about. You know, it can be some abstruse clause in a contract. It can be some much more human thing. But if you talk about it in everyday language, more emotion will come through. And again, we're not talking emotion in the sense of overt, explicit, big displays of emotion, but just more meaning, you know, more human connection for the audience. I think we as lawyers need to make a really effortful project of trying hard to get our language as simple and human and everyday as we can. And what you've just described is why Rick Friedman's book, Rules of the Road, is so important that when you talk about things like negligence, it's vague. It's much better to talk about specific things that people did wrong or could have done better. More bang for the buck with those words. Yeah, and I don't think we should be too hard on ourselves in this respect because it's one of the big decisions to make with any brief is how long should this be? How much explanation, how much authority does this judge need? But one of the guiding principles remains, the longer it is, the harder the work you're imposing on the judge. One of the ways I address that myself in my own writing, if I'm going to do something that's 15, 20, 30 pages, and I occasionally do, I will structure it as kind of a mini brief and then a full brief. I learned this approach by a great mentor, Mike Aberesk, out in South Dakota. I will do a long introduction, but it'll be an introduction that provides the gist of the entire brief in five pages. So the core point, the core authority, the core evidence succinctly presented so that even if the judge doesn't read the whole thing in five pages, they've got the whole argument and they've got the most powerful support that I can give them for it. Good. Let's change gears. Let's talk about trust. You have a quote, trusting someone gives them enormous power over us. You have a lot to say about this topic. Yeah. So I say viewed from above, the whole process of persuasion collapses into a simple sounding formula. One, earn trust. Two, enlist existing attitudes to motivate the decision. Three, justify the decision. Four, make it interesting, clear, and easy. And five, steer around resistance. It's not a mistake that number one in that list is earn trust. You know, we approach jurors in high suspicion contexts. They come in prime to view us as liars, as cheaters, as trying to manipulate them. We start out, you know, on the plaintiff side, for sure, we start out with a deficit of trust. And it doesn't matter what we say. It doesn't matter what we bring to them if they don't trust us to be basically honest about anything we bring them. Anything that comes out of our hand is tainted for a time until we have earned trust. And you see defense lawyers who don't seem to understand this at all. You'll see trials in which defense lawyers put up cases that reek of dishonesty from beginning to end and are then surprised when they lose because they had put up a logically coherent case. Every witness they put up said their lines. And it's like it just never occurs to them that the jury just won't believe a word that comes out of their mouths. Well, you know, we start on the plaintiff side, we start out behind the eight ball in that respect. And it just does not matter what we show the jury. If the jury distrusts us, then everything we bring them is tainted by the dishonesty or the manipulativeness that they perceive in us. I mean, the first order of business is to earn trust. The most unintuitive piece of this is that you can't earn trust by doing things that are solely and specially intended to show how trust worthy you are. 
If you expect somebody to be trying to manipulate you, then if you see them making a special effort to get you to trust them, that's just going to make you put your guard up. In essence, it comes down to being a good, honest, decent person through and through. You know, there's a reason why guys like Rick Friedman make a big point of recommending, you know, various kinds of working on yourself as a person, because ultimately in the crucible of trial, especially the kind of person you are is going to come out. And if you are the kind of person who tends to try to manipulate people, that's going to come out. As lawyers, we are told to argue our case, the word argue. But as I read what you had to say, and I'm thinking back to other things I've read, for instance, Dale Carnegie's classic, How to Win Friends and Influence People, he's got a chapter called Don't Argue. And his quote is, avoid arguments as you would avoid rattlesnakes and earthquakes. There's a natural tension between earning trust and arguing, such that I see more and more the role of an advocate as being more like an educator than someone who's arguing a case. I like your word educator as a description of the role. My first job was at Boyce Schiller, David Boys, who's come in for some criticism lately, but is still one of the great American trial lawyers. Boys liked to describe himself as an explainer. And a lot of us, especially on the plaintiff side, a lot of us like to use metaphors for our work. You know, we're warriors, we're fighters, you know, we're fighting for our clients. I have recently started to think that those get in the way. The more we talk about ourselves in those terms, the more we get ourselves into a mindset where we're going to present ourselves in a way that feels aggressive to people. And, you know, you don't persuade people by being aggressive. You actually have a title to one of your chapters. We don't like being told what to think or do. Yeah, there's this great concept from the psychology of persuasion, reactance. The idea of reactance is you tell people what to think and they will react against it. People like autonomy. They like independence. They like to make up their own minds. They like to make their own decisions. You tell them what to think. You tell them what to feel. You tell them what to do. They will react against it. And the best advocates never seem to be doing this. They never seem to be telling people what to think. They never seem to be arguing. They seem to be just laying out the facts calmly, sometimes with some emotion. But when there's a show of emotion, it's understated. It's always after the decision maker will already have reached that emotional state on their own. So it's always understated. It's always after they've earned permission for a display of emotion. But mainly, they just seem to be laying out the simple truth of things, not pushing it on anybody. There are two pieces here. You know, one is understanding that intellectually, and not everybody does. But it's a powerful idea, and you need to understand it intellectually. But even if you understand it intellectually, then there's the whole other problem of integrating it into how you work. You know, talking to a jury in a way that recognizes that you can't push things on them. And that is very hard to do. It takes a lot of practice, and most people don't have enough trials to get the practice in front of juries. So if you're going to get practice, you need to get practice in some other form. You know, it can be in focus groups. It can be in just coaching sessions within your firm or with a friend or whatever. But it is very hard to actually stop pushing things on your audience. So going back to trust, part of the problem of pushing things on a jury is reactance. You know, they will just naturally push back 
back. But the other part is part of what comes through when you push and push and push is distrust. There's a sense that you do not trust them. Well, these things are reciprocal. You know, reciprocity is built into human nature. And if you show me that you do not trust me, then I will not trust you. You know, it's one of the big Jedi skills that the masters have developed is this ability to stop pushing, to stop seeming to argue, just to be calmly with understated emotion where appropriate, just laying out the simple truth of things and letting the jurors come to their own conclusions about without pushing your conclusions on them. We might want to end this by running through your bullet points that you title on earning trust. You have nine points and I'll just read them off. And if you can comment on each one of those, I know we've talked about them somewhat, but let's just put it all together on earning trust. Number one, respect and value the person you're talking to. So that's where it starts, because how you feel about the judge will come through both in what you write and in what you say in person. How you feel about the jurors will come through. You know, Josh Carton and David Ball have that great book, Theater for Trial, and they give some ways to deal with this. But you have to get into a frame of mind where you respect and value whoever you're talking to. It can take some work. I mean, there are judges you do not like. There are judges you feel hostile to. Somehow it will leak out that you are hostile to them. And since we are reciprocal, that will induce hostility back at you. Your second point runs all the way back to case selection. Take positions you believe in. And we can put that together with the next one, which is tell the truth, including the essential bad parts. You do not deserve trust if you take positions that you don't believe in and you cannot tell the truth, including the bad parts that are genuinely material, genuinely essential to the issue. If you cannot or will not do that, then you don't deserve to be trusted and you will not be trusted. Point four, bring your whole self, but a decent, restrained version of it. Right. So we approach each other as human beings and we expect the person talking to us to be human, to be a complete person, to have emotional reactions to things. It is weird to have someone talking about something that is genuinely important on a human level, something for which there is an appropriate emotional response and have no indication of any emotional response from that person. That's weird. And we do not trust weirdos. On the other hand, this is a forum, a lawsuit, in which big displays of emotion are frowned on and are looked at suspiciously. So we have to be in this Goldilocks zone where we appear as complete persons with normal emotional responses to things, but we restrain it out of respect for the decision maker, who is also supposed to avoid undue influence by emotion. It has to be moderated. So we need to show up as full people, but restrained in a way that is respectful and appropriate to the forum. And obviously it should go without saying there should never be the slightest slightest effort to gin up a phony or exaggerated display of emotion. I mean, that's just the worst kind of dishonesty and manipulation. So I think we've actually touched on your next three then. Engage your listeners on a human level. Six would be keep your emotional pitch in tune with your listeners. And seven, the one you just mentioned, don't try to hide your agenda or shine it up. Anything else you want to add on any of those? Just the point about staying in tune with your listeners. Jerry Spence emphasized this in some of his books. It's tricky because by the time we come into a trial, you know, we've been living with a case for months or years and we know the full truth of it. 
but we can't be responding emotionally to the full truth of it before the jury knows the full truth of it. So there's this tricky kind of skill of narrowing your focus to just the information that the jury has. Ultimately, after hearing the full truth of it, the jury may be angry. But if you start an opening statement with even an understated sense of anger, that's likely to put you in this strained, awkward relationship with the jurors where they don't get where you are coming from. Again, you seem like a weirdo because your emotional response does not mesh with the information they have. That's just a nuance of it, but it's an important nuance. Point eight, know what you're talking about and look like it without putting on errors. Right. So this goes to the issue of competence. The biggest part of trust is honesty. But even if you're completely honest, I'm not going to trust you on a thing if you're not competent on that issue. You may be an absolutely honest, completely scrupulous car mechanic. But if I don't believe that you are competent to fix my brakes, I'm not going to trust you to fix my brakes. You know, honesty is essential, but incomplete without competence. For most of my life, I have resisted the notion that appearances matter. The way you look, the way you're dressed in court, the look of a brief, the typography, the formatting, all that stuff, appearances matter to perceptions of competence. So we need to be careful about them. Your final point nine, abide by values you share with the decision maker and beware the hair trigger for distrust in high suspicion context. Yeah, so this is another kind of qualification and nuance about honesty and authenticity. Even if you are completely honest, even if I believe that you are completely honest, even if I believe that you are completely competent, I still will not trust you if your honest, authentic values, reactions to things are very much at odds with my own. I might like you. I might have good feelings toward you on some level because you're honest and competent. But if your values just put you really at odds with me, then I'm not going to look to you, certainly not for an overall take on a thing, you know, like an overall take on liability, an overall take on damages. You know, you don't have to be exactly the same person I am, obviously, but you have to be consistent enough with who I am, how I feel about things so that it makes sense for me to look to the information you're presenting and the take on it that you're presenting for me to rely on it. The most obvious example of this is in a plaintiff's civil case, the amount of damages you suggest to the jury. You know, if I'm looking at a case and it looks to me like there's a case for which $100,000 would be a reasonable and fair amount of compensation and you're suggesting a verdict of $5 million, you know, that's a problem. And it may be a problem that destroys trust. I like the idea of doing some significant jury research to figure out how much of an ask is going to be so much that it undermines trust in us. Your undertaking for this book, Lawyers, Judges, and Semi-Rational Beasts, that was an enormous undertaking. It's a long book packed with lots of observations. Obviously, you did an enormous amount of research in putting it together. Did you have any epiphanies after having written the book where you look back and you say, oh, I guess I now understand something better for having written this book? I had a bunch of them. And it's embarrassing because almost everything in the book felt obvious to me after I read it. We haven't talked about this, but the things that make you remember something points, facts, whatever, sticks in our memories largely when they are associated with emotion in some way. 
seems obvious to me now, but had never occurred to me. That's very important in a trial lawyer's work because juries have to rely on what they remember from the evidence, what they remember from the testimony. So knowing what kinds of things help get something stuck in your memory is hugely important. As I was finishing up the book, I was really appreciating more than I ever had before just how much everything comes down to character. You know, Aristotle famously identified the three elements of persuasion as ethos, logos, and pathos. Ethos, you know, roughly is character, you know, the personal character of the person attempting to persuade you. So much comes down to that. And if we really understand that and really integrate that into our work, then it has thoroughgoing implications for everything that we do in life, including how we talk to our wives or husbands, how we talk to our kids, how we deal with waitresses in a restaurant, every aspect of our lives. Well, thank you so much for spending this time discussing your many insights. And again, your book is Lawyers, Judges, and Semi-Rational Beasts. Thanks very much for the invitation. This has been fun. Great. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Beeth. See you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And if you want a lively look at life and law from a female attorney's point of view, check out our Heels in the Courtroom podcast. Subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.